The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all. Planets are spinning through space. Smile upon your face. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of Sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the editor of a newsletter that has been around since 1981. It's called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And you can learn more about my work uh, by calling my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426. That's Claudio Bossi, 718-457-1426. Or you can go to my website at miningstocks.com. That's miningstocks.com. Well, I want to thank each of you for listening to our show. We are gratified by the growing listenership. The popularity of the show is, is definitely picking up. There seems to be a lot of things we're passing on that are of interest to a lot of people, especially those that are attuned to the market problems as we see them, uh, namely the uh, enormous amount of indebtedness and fiat currency that we have that's sloshing around, causing all sort of malinvestment and, and all kinds of problems of indebtedness and, and insolvency. Uh, so we think we're on to something uh, in terms of helping folks here on the show, and we're, so we're very glad to talk to you each week. I want to also thank our sponsors uh, that make this show financially possible. They are Sand Gold, Hawthorne Gold, Magellan Minerals, Timmins Gold Corp., Barkerville Gold Mines, Crocodile Gold Corp., Metanor Resources, Riverside Resources, Western Pacific Resources, Pediment Gold, Silvercrest Mines, and Resource Consultants. 
Resource Consultants is a licensed precious metals broker based in Phoenix, Arizona. It's headed by Pat Gorman, who is himself a radio talk show host. Pat is a semi-regular guest on our show. He's been gone now for a few weeks because he wasn't feeling well, but we're glad to know Pat is is up on the mend and, and back at work, and he's going to be talking to us in a few minutes. You can learn more about Resource Consultants by going to their website at buysilvernow.com. That's buysilvernow.com. You can also call their office in Tempe, Arizona. That's 480-820-5877, 480-820-5877. Well, as I mentioned, Pat Gorman will be with us in just a couple of moments. Our special guest this week is going to be John Perkins. He'll be joining us at a half past the hour in the first segment here, the first hour of our two-hour show. And then he's going to talk about his new book called Hoodwinked. We're going to find out what John has to say. In fact, Hoodwinked uh, suggests that uh, at least John is talking about the reasons he believes we're in the global financial mess we're in. We're going to see what John has to say and and perhaps uh, see how his views might differ from ours if they do. Uh, turning the markets, we um, well, this year is sort of a lackluster performance year so far for our model portfolio. We're basically break-even, down 13 basis points as of the end of yesterday. That comes on the heels of a 78% gain last year. So last year was very kind to the markets uh, in general. But I'm very cautious at this point in time. Uh, I am very, very concerned that we could be heading into another major downturn in the markets and the equity markets in general. And uh, because I think we started a, a secular bear market either in 2000, as, you meet, as uh, some people think, or uh, perhaps in 2007, uh, you know, before the Lehman Brothers debacle uh, in 2008. But it looks like we could have seen a peak in uh, 2007 and that we are in a secular bear market and that what we've seen is just simply a cyclical bull within that secular bear. And if we are in this secular bear market that, the sense that I have, uh, and many of those that we've had on this show, is that we could be heading into much, much uh, lower levels. We often quote Dr. Robert McHugh on this show. Uh, he believes that we are heading down into what he calls the sea wave down in a, in a three-leg bear market, and Robert McHugh is calling this a cataclysmic nation-changing event. That's quite severe, it would seem, uh, but we'll see. We This morning I listened to Luis Yamada, who is arguably one of the most sought-after technical analysts on Wall Street. And Louise was on Bloomberg Radio with Thomas Kane this morning, and she was talking about a secular bear market as well. She's convinced that, in fact, this bear market started in the year 2000. And she's saying that back in 2000, she and her colleagues were really seeing this as a repeat of the 29 to 1942 uh, variety of secular bear markets, and she thought it would be one more of a deflationary uh, event uh, in which interest rates would be falling and prices would be declining. Um, and she seems to think that that was a correct call. I think the jury is out yet because uh, obviously this, this event, I think, is not over. Louise also sees 2007 equal to 1937, and she's expecting, um, it sounds like she's expecting at least a 20% decline uh, from these levels right here. Well, we'll see. Uh, time will tell, that's for sure. Louise's uh, views are not nearly as bearish as some others we've had on our show. Robert Prechter, for example, Ian Gordon, and even Richard Russell is now saying that he thinks Dow 1000 is not a silly idea. Russell is suggesting we could see Dow 1000. Well, that's almost too absurd to think about in, in the minds of most people. 
We're going to have Ian Gordon with us next week. He's going to be our special guest, and we'll ask him to defend his paper, Why Dow 1000 is Not a Silly Number. Ian Gordon has been on our show before, and I'm sure he's going to have some interesting things to say. Well, uh, before we uh, think more about Ian Gordon and the deflationary side, I want to uh, say hello to Pat Gorman. Pat, are you there? I'm here, Jay. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing really well. The big question is, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. In fact, I'm doing even better now because I was one of the few people that in March of 2000 said we are entering a secular bear market, and I got laughed at, teased at. You wouldn't believe some of the things that I... That, but really, I believe, uh, like uh, like Amana does, that we started the secular bear market uh, in 2000, and we've had nothing but secular bear market rallies ever since. There's been no substance to this at all. So I think right now, however, Jay, you know, you and I go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth about deflation, inflation, mm-hmm. deflation, inflation. Yeah. You know, and I believe that we're, we're, personally, I believe that both is happening. But I think if if you're looking short term, you know, the market looks suspect, like you're talking about. Whether we go to 1,000 or 2,000, doesn't matter. I do believe that that market is in deep, deep trouble for a long period of time. If for no other reason, forget about the technicals for a minute or two, if for no other reason, this whole last rally of last year, in my opinion, had nothing to do with mom and pop in the market. It was all institutional uh, boys playing their black boxes. The whole thing was institutional. Mom and pop didn't seem to get involved with this at all. And mom and pop don't want to put their money in there anymore. There's still three and a half, four trillion dollars on the sidelines of mom and pop's money. But I, I see what's coming at us right now for a short period of time is is a deflation, a deflationary downturn in the entire commodity market mm-hmm. for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to last years and years and years, but I think it's going to be. You know, you're going to. You, the forces of deflation right now, Jay, um, are, you know, I have to agree with you now, uh, right this minute, because they're coming at us in, you know, um, full force. Okay, well, we, that, that I think is, it's obvious to me that that's the case. What I have to think is in order to turn this around, to create the opposite side of the pathological coin and go towards an inflationary environment, you have to get money into the hands of the masses. You were mentioning mom and pop are sitting on their hands. They're not putting money in the market. I think there's right. a good reason for that. They're scared. They're losing their jobs. They don't know, you know if they're going to be able to pay the rent. Why to, why to put money in the equity market? Well, I think, too, I think what's also happening is that the deflation that you're seeing, you know, the dollars that they're pulling back in and so forth and so on, because that's the basic definition of deflation, I think is, is, is kind of a control, contrived, manipulated situation in mm-hmm. itself. And they're going to see that that's not going to work either, Jay. They're yeah. going to see that that's not going to work. You've got an election year coming. You don't think that they're going to try to at least try to figure out during this election year how to get as much money into mom and pop's hands before November as they can and take complete credit for it? Um, I think you. I think you're going to see a turnaround, and maybe even an inflationary turnaround. The problem is what you said, and mm-hmm. the problem that I can't seem to grasp myself is when is the velocity of money? If if you do have an inflationary scenario coming at us eventually, when is that velocity going to start? Well, that's the key, isn't it? I mean, because the psychology changes, people start to spend their money because they're fearful that tomorrow, whatever they need, they need today is going to cost much more tomorrow. So they go out and they turn turn the money around. Our friend Richard Mayberry, of course, talks about this a lot in his newsletter. Right. And Richard is talking about, you know, he, he understands that foreigners are catching on to this much more rapidly than Americans. At least the smart money overseas is already starting to get rid of their dollars, trying to find other places to put them. Americans are usually the last to figure this out, aren't they? Well, you know, look at this. Look at, look at this stupidity that's going on the last few days. You've got a new budget. 
three point what is it three point seven three point eight trillion dollars right. and of course now the big argument is well you never included Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac in this <laughs> so you add another six point two trillion dollars yeah I mean you you've got deficits uh, that probably on on budget off budget that are running over ten trillion dollars it's totally out of control Jay it's not it can't stand you know you can't have this go on and on and on and on and on. Sooner or later, that dam is going to burst. Well, it certainly seems to be the case. I mean, these are only numbers, aren't they? And how can they be repaid? I mean, I can think back when we were really worried about the baby boomers and the demographics and how we weren't going to be able to pay for Social Security and Medicare, and we're not even hearing about that now because all of these big bailouts and and stimulus packages have seemed to sort of almost... um, you know, the amount to more than that. So if we were broke before that and there were real concerns, valid concerns about it now, Pat, it seems to me we're an insolvent nation. Where are we going to go with this thing? I guess, is it going, I mean, the big question in my mind is, it does it get solved with inflation or a deflationary depression? I mean, Richard Mayberry in one recent letter is talking about a 30% probability of re uh, of the return of a, Pol- a Volcker-esque type policy. Now, Paul Volcker's been given more more uh, say in this administration since the elections recently in, in Massachusetts. But uh, what are your thoughts? How does this get resolved? Well, you know, it's interesting that Paul Volcker's back. I mean, you know, I hate to say this, but Volcker's a genius. Uh, so maybe something good will come of it. But the reality is is that, that I think you're going to see it all. I mean, I don't think that, that we have the stomach. I don't think we have the current administration and current Congress that has the stomach to stand up right now and say, listen, the best way to do this is to flush the entire system and start over. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's, you know, it's going to be that would be hard for every single per, every single American and many people around the globe. Okay, but at least you've got a new starting point and you can start and do things right. No, I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's going to be forced to happen, mm-hmm. but not a choice, Jay. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think what they're going to do is they are going to, if they have the opportunity, right now what they're doing is banging on the banks. And, um, you know, I mean, they should bring the Glass-Deagle Act back, as far as I'm concerned, on the yeah. banks. Either you're a bank or you're an investment firm. One or the right. other, get over it, okay? But, I mean, they're going to start, you know, I still believe they're going to stand, you know, like I talked about, you know, they talked about Bernanke for years throwing money out of helicopters, mm-hmm. standing on street corners mm-hmm. and giving it away. I still think that's ahead of us. I think that, um, you know, how long it's going to take, I don't know, but I still think that's ahead of us where money is going to be, you know, there's nobody showing up, well, the people that are showing up that are creditworthy to, to borrow money. And, of course, money in this country is nothing more than credit. Yeah. I mean, that's all it is. It's debt. Yeah, debt I mean, they don't, you know, the sub, there's more subprime loans being uh, offered to people now than there is legitimate loans for business going forward. And, you know, you're not going to continue to be able to tax businesses. You know, there's new incentive about uh, giving tax credits to small business for hiring an employee. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's not going to work, Jay, when the credit is $5,000, and you and I both know even to, even to hire a minimum wage employee is going to cost us $25,000, dollars to hire them. Yeah, you know, no, it's, so it's, uh, it's absurd, and, it, and what you're talking about is what the Austrians understand. Are you as, kidding me? What, what you're talking about, Pat, is what the Austrian economists understand as malinvestment. I mean, all of this money, as you were saying, is going into the wrong place because the money is pumped into the system so rapidly it, it can't find a, uh, a very efficient home. Well, Pat, uh, I know that you're bullish on gold and silver longer term, but could you give us our, sort of an idea of where you think the market's headed in the near term? 
Well, I don't know if we if if this last two days gold has really made a nice rise upwards. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just because of the budget or, you know, people are, you know, seeing this and going, What a waste of money, you know, it's costing us more money, which is gonna be inflationary, which maybe is the reason that gold's going up. But I think gold's gonna kinda of waver here for about the next uh sixty days mm-hmm. in this in this range, range bound, but I still believe that we will be thirteen, fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars by the end of the year. Really, by the end of the year. And what about silver? Are you more bullish on silver well, than gold? I don't know if I'm more bullish or not. I'm more bullish on silver from its bot where I believe it may bottom, Jay. In mm-hmm. other words, right now we're looking at a cash price of silver in the aftermarket is right around $16.72. Right now during this little decline that I see, the work really does show that we could go under $10. But when it does finally bottom, wherever that bottom is, I think silver is going to turn and take off like a madman. Okay, well, that's it's um, you know, I think certainly an interesting thing. So this might be right a good minute, and I'm only talking short term here. Well, I understand I mean, all that. you're really path. looking at, as far as I'm concerned, I'm in the physical world of gold and mm-hmm. silver, and all it's really providing us, any dip right now providing us, is a good opportunity to, to acquire more physical gold and silver, and that's a long-term place. Physical gold and silver is not buy it on Monday and sell it on Friday. Yeah, and, and physical, when we talk about physical, Pat, what are the problems? I mean, what are the prospects? I, I know we've asked you this question before, but you might just give us your views on it again. What are the prospects for confiscation of precious metals in the United well, in States? Well, in my opinion, the prospects for confiscation, I think you'd have a, a better chance winning the lottery, a much better chance of winning the lottery. There's no reason for confiscation. Mm-hmm. You know, give me about a minute and a half, and I'll explain to you why. If you look at confiscation, first of all, use that word if you wish, but they didn't confiscate gold in 1933 or in the 30s. They called gold in and made it illegal to own. But they didn't sell, send somebody to, with jackboots and helmets door to door to door and come in and steal your gold and steal your gold. Mm-hmm. So was it, confiscation is a real nasty word. Yeah. They did that for the purpose, and I'm not saying they're right, okay, but the purpose they did that was because we were on a gold standard at the time, Jay, in order for them, we're, we're in a depression, what's depression, lack of liquidity, in order yeah. for them at that time to print more money, they needed more influx of gold immediately. Right. So they they needed right gold because it was a gold-backed system to expand the money supply. They don't money. need that now. That's right. Okay. All right, that's fair enough. Well, it's time to head for break now. We're going to have Chen Lin joining us uh, soon. Thank you, Pat, so much for your views. We want to have you back uh, very often here if, if you're sure. willing to come on with us. Oh, I can. we can always squeeze 20 and minutes. And we're, we're going to talk about your – just give us a, real quickly, your show is coming up in uh March 26th in and 27th. It, if it's not up yet, it should be up on uh, buysilvernow.com, Wealth Protection. You're coming, Roger's coming. We've got nine good, solid speakers this year. It's going to be a great time. Uh, look at the website, uh, buysilvernow.com, and it should be up at any time. Or give us a call, 800-494-4149, and we'll give you all the information. Thanks, Jay. That's terrific. Thanks, Pat. We're going to be right back with Chen Lin at the break. Uh, don't go away, and Chen Lin's going to have some very interesting things to tell you. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, 
Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Apollo Gold is a gold-producing and exploration company that recently brought the brand-new Black Fox Mine into production. Apollo's 100% owned Black Fox Mine is located in the world-renowned gold-producing district of Timmins, Ontario, Canada. It's expected to produce over 100,000 ounces of gold annually. Apollo Gold also has tremendous potential for additional gold discovery as they continue their current exploration program on their recent new discovery at the Gray Fox property, which is adjacent to the Black Fox Mine, as well as its new land acquisition of Pike River. With gold prices near an all-time high, investors should consider Apollo Gold as an outstanding opportunity to invest in an undervalued junior gold mining company, well-positioned to take advantage of a bull gold market. Apollo Gold trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol AGT and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol APG. Visit Apollo's website at www.apollogold.com. Apollo Gold, a golden opportunity for investment. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I've got Chen Lin here. We've only got a few minutes, so I want to jump right in and talk to Chen about oil. Chen, is, uh, as I understand it, the last we've spoken offline here a couple of days ago, you are quite bullish about the uh, price of oil going forward in spite of the fact that the global economy remains very lackluster. Could you explain why you're, ex- why you're, you're bullish on oil at this point in time? Partially, is the oil is, um, is, is, is something that's different from base metal. It's the once oil is consumed, it's gone, it's burned. Right? And then the, uh, also oil well, uh, it tends to decline very rapidly. So if you don't invest in the oil field in a in couple of years, your production will, can go down to like a 10% or 20% of original uh, drilling, original float, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a key issue. Uh, 2008, we've seen all these great companies like Oil Lasco, you know, go, went bankrupt, you know. Mm-hmm. All these oil companies, uh, exploration company going under, 
So and the investment in oil field went down dramatically. Right now, the back, fast forward, we are like a year and a half after the, the crisis. So I think that it will be the strain on this oil field. They have to start producing, have to invest money to, uh, to drill to get more oil out. So that, that's what I think the oil, oil is, is demand-supply. Demand now the supply has some issues. Okay, so so is your case then for a strong oil price a a, a supply issue or a demand issue? What about Chinese demand? I guess in light of a of a slowdown in economic growth that's a, that's occurred since the uh, fall of two thousand and eight. Great question, Jay. So that I was talking about this is supply side. A demand mm-hmm. side in China, the the automobile growth is unbelievable. You know, I, I check all the different sources like. Like Beijing, their automobile increased like 20% per year. So all these new car purchased last year, they need to burn more gasoline. Mm-hmm. And then China has more a strategic oil uh, supply. You know, they, they're building this huge tank for the strategic oil reserve in China. And mm-hmm. they're going to start filling sometimes right now, about right now, they about finished. They have like uh, all the different phases. So, so they, they, could, they need to fill up the tank. So there's a lot of oil demand as far as I see. So Chinese government, the Chinese government are really worried about, you know, that they, you know, China don't have enough oil for China. Okay, uh, Chen, is this is this oil that's being uh, sort of hoarded then and not consumed immediately, and and China is just stashing it away for, you know, make sure they have oil supplies? Is this speculation in part uh, by by international traders? Because I'm hearing a lot of people being concerned about about oil speculation and the price is being driven up by by Wall Street speculators. Right, yeah. The for China is uh, China has no before has no strategic oil reserve, unlike mm-hmm. United States. So if oil got cut off, uh, China, you know, there's no oil left. So mm-hmm. China start recognizes uh, in the past five six years, start building those huge strategic oil reserve, and then they just uh, start finishing up. You know, they have uh, all the different big tank. They just finish. I heard they finishing up like uh, about about right now, maybe an. Late, a month later, something like that. So they have a huge uh, tank to be filled in China. Mm-hmm. Well, Chen, you were telling me something very interesting about what was going on in Iraq with Chinese oil companies. I guess it's a Chinese uh, state-owned oil, oil, oil company that's in Iraq. They're willing to go in and explore and develop oil fields in Iraq. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that arrangement? Yes, uh, they are basically, unlike all the other oil companies, you know, you pay royalty, you pay tax, and then you keep the profit. The China's arrangement with Iraq is very different. They only China is pay for one dollar profit for every barrel of the oil drill. So it's unreal. You know, all the other companies like Exxon, they, they say oh, we're not going to do this. But Chinese are willing to do that. Uh, part of the reason is that China uh, has a, sincerely has a fear that uh, there's not enough oil for China. So we are doing that for almost for free to drill the Iraqi oil, putting a lot of investment in the oil field. Uh, at least China can can you know can guarantee the supply for China for oil for China. So they're willing to go in there, Chen, and develop oil fields in Iraq and and, and get only one dollar a barrel for it, exactly. and then the rest $1 of the money goes to the to the Iraqi government. Is that the arrangement? Yes, yeah, all the rest, all the spot price goes to the Iraqi government. Uh, only China only get one dollar profit, you know, uh, after cost, right? One dollar profit goes to China, China government, Chinese government, 
with all the investment, they have to double the production in a couple of years. Otherwise, they don't get a penny. So know? that's the arrangement they have with the Iraqi government, which we might consider to be almost the U.S. government, right? Well, in some sense, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, who's over there calling the shots? I mean, we're still there, right, with our troops and so forth. So it's sort of uh, very interesting to me that, that the Chinese would be willing to... Um, to do that, but I guess their their need to secure sources of oil and make sure there's a lot of oil in the world's market is is what's prompting this. Is that right? Yeah, that's my I be, my belief. Yes, yeah. China they they really worry about the oil supply for China, so they're willing to do something that Western companies are willing to do, like Exxon, Mobil, you know that. Mm-hmm. Okay, Chen, we only have about a minute left here. Can you you had uh, told your subscribers about a company? Uh, an oil company. Do you want to mention the name of that? Yeah, it's a Matt Resource, as I recommended last week. Um, to, it, it, it's, a, it's a driller in Nigeria. Uh, there, if you look at their past report, it's, it's treating about like one times cash flow or about 1.5 times earnings. Is this a U.S. corporation, Chen? It's a Canadian company. Canadian uh, company. Drilling as Nigeria, Africa. But it's, it's Nigeria is uh, like OPEC nation, so the environment is pretty decent for oil driller. So uh, so I think, you know, that they have a tremendous crash flow. And it seems that their wells uh, seems to be quite stable. And then right now they're flowing about 4,000 barrels per day. Uh, their capacity, I think, is around 15,000 barrels per day. So Okay, what is the symbol for the company in case people might be interested in following up and doing some research on it? Yeah, it's MMT, Michael, Michael, Tom. Okay, very good. Uh, Chen, I think we're going to have to leave it go at that. Uh, we're coming up on the break, and we're going to have up with us next uh, John Perkins. You won't want to miss what John has to say. He's going to be talking about his latest book called Hoodwinked. Uh, John Perkins, I think uh, we're going to ask him a little bit about this deal we just talked about uh, with respect to China and the Iraqi government and see if he has some comments about that. I'm sure he will. Uh, John Perkins, uh, you don't want to miss what he has to say. I think he has a, a lot of information that can help us understand why things are the way they are in the world today and why we're in such a mess, economically speaking, globally at this point in time. So we'll be right back with John Perkins. Don't go away. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. 
At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. Apollo Gold is a gold-producing and exploration company that recently brought the brand-new Black Fox Mine into production. Apollo's 100% owned Black Fox Mine is located in the world-renowned gold-producing district of Timmins, Ontario, Canada. It's expected to produce over 100,000 ounces of gold annually. Apollo Gold also has tremendous potential for additional gold discovery as they continue their current exploration program on their recent new discovery at the Gray Fox property, which is adjacent to the Black Fox Mine, as well as its new land acquisition of Pike River. With gold prices near an all-time high, investors should consider Apollo Gold as an outstanding opportunity to invest in an undervalued junior gold mining company, well positioned to take advantage of a bull gold market. Apollo Gold trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol AGT and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol APG. Visit Apollo's website at www.apollogold.com. Apollo Gold, a golden opportunity for investment. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really privileged to have John Perkins with us. John was with us, oh, several months ago, I guess it was, and we just didn't have enough time to explore all the possibility, all, all of the topics that John had to talk about, and we're not going to have enough time today. I can guarantee that, even though John has agreed to be with us for the entire hour uh, from, uh, from 3.30 here until 4.30 Eastern Time. Uh, John Perkins um, is, is uh, best known, I think, at least in my mind, for his book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which really opened my eyes and the eyes of many, many people. I'd interesting uh, discussion with a friend of mine this last weekend who is... Uh, 
who works for the State Department, actually, and, um, uh, you know, is in security for the State Department. And when I talked to this fellow, he had read John's book, and he said, wow, did that ever open his eyes about how the world really works and what's going on? And, and, and my friend said it just made all the sense in the world to him. Uh, you know, and I think when people read uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and hopefully people will go out and also buy and read uh, Hoodwink, John's latest book, it also will make a lot of sense in terms of how the world really works. It's, uh, I guess, not nothing terribly new under the sun, uh, as it says in the book of Ecclesiastes. We all behave pretty much the same way, although in the nuclear age things are a bit different, perhaps. Um, anyway, I, I want to get right into uh, John Perkins' uh, bio can be uh, can be read uh, on our website where you're listening to this uh, uh, this webcast. Uh, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, uh, other than to say that uh, John had worked as an economic hitman. And so, John, welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. It's great to be with you again, Jay. Thanks for having me on board. Well, it's really great to have you. I know I enjoyed so much the conversation the last time. Uh, could you tell, for the benefit of those that may not have heard our show with you before, uh, our interview with you before, or read your book, what is an economic hitman? Yeah, and those who, had, who did hear me are going to think they're listening to a stuck record again. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, I guess for those who haven't, you know, I, I, we economic hitmen really have created the world's first truly global empire, and the first one in history that's been created without the military for the most part. We work many different ways, but I think the most common one, and this ties in with your, your last guest, is that we identify a, a country with resources our corporations covet, like oil and then arrange a huge loan to that country through the World Bank or one of its sister organizations. And yet the money never actually goes to the country. Instead, it goes to our own corporations to build infrastructure projects in that country, power plants, industrial parks, highways, things that benefit a few wealthy families in that country, as well as our own corporations, but don't help the majority of the people who are too poor to buy electricity or yeah, don't have the skills to get jobs in industrial Parks don't own cars to drive on the highways. And yet they, the, the, the majority of the people, are left holding a huge debt that they can't repay. And so at some point, we go back to the country and we say, listen, you know, you owe us a lot of money, can't pay your debts, give us a favor, dude, you know, sell us oil real cheap without any environmental restrictions, or allow us to build a military base on your soil, mm-hmm. or some such thing as that. And in the few occasions when we fail, and I talk in my books uh, about how I failed with the democratically elected president of Ecuador, Jaime Roldos, and also the head of state of Panama, Omar Torrijos, when we fail, uh, the jackals go in and either overthrow governments or assassinate the leaders. And in the case of both Roldos and, and Torrijos, they were assassinated because I failed to corrupt them. I failed to bring them over. So the difference, John, is that in the old days, during the colonial days, for example, the militaries went in and just went into countries where there were a lot of resources and, and basically took them over, and we're using a more clandestine me- method of achieving the same ends now. Is that what the difference is? A- absolutely. You know, in the old days, Jay, uh, you know, we, the, the, the troops went in and everybody was kind of proud of it. Everybody knew that it was happening, and they had always had some good excuse, like spreading civilization or spreading Christianity or some such thing. Mm-hmm. But it was it was overt. Everybody knew that the young men were going off to off to subjugate another country, basically. And uh, today we don't know this. It's much more clandestine. And I think, in a way, uh, 
democracy is based on the premise that you have an informed electorate. Mm-hmm. If our electorate doesn't understand this most basic principle of foreign policy, we're not informed. And if we're not informed, it's, it's really hard to say that we're truly voting democratically. Yeah, it, it, it would seem as though we still march off to wars, though, and we have to have an excuse for going there. We had an excuse for going to Iraq. What was that? Well, yeah, what happens when um, when the jackals go? So when the economic hitmen fail, the jackals go in, and mm-hmm. sometimes the jackals fail. Not very often, mm-hmm. but that's what happened in Iraq. Mm-hmm. The, the, the economic hitmen could not bring Saddam Hussein around. The jackals couldn't assassinate him. His security forces were very good. He had look-alike doubles, which makes it extremely tough to assassinate a guy. And so we sent the military in in the early in, in 1990, uh, and uh, you know we took out his military. And at that time, we could have taken out Saddam, but we didn't want to. He was the kind of leader that we liked. He, he, we, we thought he, because we'd taken out his military, he was sufficiently chastised, and now he would keep pumping oil for us. He would keep the Kurds calm. He would keep the Iranians in their border. He'd be the kind of strong man we'd like. Mm-hmm. But in fact, he wasn't chastised. He, he, he refused to play ball with us. And so we went in again and took him out in the early 90s. But of course, we had to have an excuse for mothers to send their sons off to war and die. And I'm trying to remember now, what was it? What was the selling point here was that we had... Um, you know, weapons of mass destruction or something that were threatening Israel or, or the U.S. or something, I guess, wasn't it? Yeah, well, the original excuse, and the first time we went in, and, and the first Bush administration was that he was threatening Kuwait, mm-hmm. which he was. And, and, and if he threatened Kuwait, he was also threatening Saudi Arabia, and these were allies of ours. Mm-hmm. Um, the second time around with the second Bush administration, yeah, it was weapons of mass destruction and 9-11, you know, that somehow we, we, we tied... Iraq in with the whole 9/11, the axis of evil, terrorism, weapons of mass destruction. It was there was nothing very rational about it at all. It was it was this appeal to these uh, sort of warped values that, that there's an evil guy out there, and we got to take him out. Right. And what about our involvement uh, in Afghanistan? What do you think that's about? Well, that's about oil too, to a large degree. It's about geor- ge- geography. It's Afghanistan controls this very, very crucial part of the world where you've got uh, tremendous lines of communication and transportation from the Caspian Sea to the Persian to, you know, all over. That whole area is just, it's, it's, it's like a, a keystone. Uh, and besides that, uh, we don't like the Taliban. We don't like uh, the Mujahideen. We don't like anything that smacks of, of this sort of uh, strong Muslim I think, however, Jay, it's, it's fair to say that more than anything else, all of these wars are about building a war economy. Mm-hmm. And we have to remember that big corporations are making huge amounts of money off these mm-hmm. wars. You know, you and I probably think we lost in Vietnam and we're losing in Iraq and probably Afghanistan, but if you're a major owner of any big multinational corporation, you're not losing in any of these wars. You didn't lose in Vietnam. You made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. This, this isn't just the obvious ones that make military equipment and supplies. It's ones that make food. It's the insurance companies that insure these these, these companies. It's it's the banks that, that, that do the banking for these companies. Mm-hmm. It's 
all kinds of ancillary uh, industries that grow up around the ones that are actually on the ground providing goods and services to the war effort. There's a whole array of companies staged behind and around those companies. So it's huge business. War is huge business. Well, it certainly is. The military certainly is a large percentage of our GDP. And uh, so it makes sense what you're saying, John. It's not just those companies that make the tanks and the airplanes and the bullets. It's, um, a whole, it's a whole part of our economy. It's really very, very big, isn't it? It's huge. And you think of the transportation companies, the, the trucking companies, the shipping companies, the airport transportation companies that, that ship all this stuff, and all of the service companies around them, like I mentioned, insurance, health care, uh, banking. Uh, there's just so much that, that, that revolves around you. I mean, you could, you, you could really say that our economy, to a very large degree, is based on, on the military. John, the, uh, my engineer is telling me that you're fading in and out a little bit on us from time to time. I don't know if it's something that if you're possibly taking the receiver away from your mouth or what it is, but if uh, we, we, we're hanging on every word you have to say. So oh. if you could, Well, whatever. I wasn't aware that I was doing that, but I will be very aware that not to do that. <laughs> okay, thanks. Well, I wanted to just ask you a little bit, uh, following the conversation we had with Chen Lin, uh, my partner who was on before us, Chen Lin, was, uh, he's from Beijing, and he keeps up pretty well with what's going on in China. He's got family members back there. He invests in the markets. Uh, Chen was telling me that the Chinese have an arrangement with the Iraqi government whereby they go in and they're, they're required to double their oil production over the next couple of years. They go in, and the arrangement with the Iraqi government is that they can have the oil, and they only have to pay a dollar a barrel. Uh, essentially, they're, 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 give, they're given a dollar a barrel, and the for the oil that's sold from Iraq, and the the Iraqi government gets the rest. So if you know if we're talking seventy one dollar oil, the Iraqi government pockets seventy dollars per barrel. The Chinese oil company gets a dollar per barrel, and the reason they would do that, Chen says, is because the Chinese are so concerned that there's enough oil flooding the markets so they can keep their growing economy going. There, uh, the number of cars are are growing very very rapidly. The amount of oil consumption, gasoline, and so forth that they need in China is growing very rapidly. So Chen says this is a policy on the part of the Chinese government. Seems to me, if we're talking about Chinese government making a deal with the Iraqi government, we're talking about the government that has been replaced, uh, perhaps by the United States when we went in there. Uh, do you? Does this sound? Does this make any sense to you? This kind of an arrangement? Yes, it makes us, it makes some sense, but I think it, it's it's not what it appears to be. Yeah. Uh, and and I don't have any inside information on this particular mm-hmm. issue. Are you able to hear me all right now? Yes, I can hear you, John. It's, okay. You're coming on. Thank you very much. Great. I think yeah. you're coming in loud and clear. Uh, you um, know, yeah. It, it, certainly, if the money's going to the Iraqi government at this point, it's it's going to us uh, at, at some level. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised if some of it's actually coming back to the Chinese too. We have to remember that. China today is extremely closely affiliated with our big corporations. The whole Chinese economy essentially is based on selling goods and services outside of China, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that's done by the big multinationals. So there's a huge alliance there. You know, the world today isn't really uh, run by countries anymore. We're at a time that's similar to when nations, excuse me, city-states became nations. Mm-hmm. Except today, the nations are losing their relevance. And so are presidents. Obama really doesn't have as much power as we'd like, like to believe he has. It's all run by the big corporations. 
they circle the globe like huge clouds drifting around this planet, knowing no national borders, not following any specific sets of laws. And they form big partnerships with the Chinese, as well as with the Taiwanese and the Tibetans, the, you know, the traditional mm-hmm. enemies. They form partnerships with the Israelis and the Arab nations. They'll form partnerships with anybody that has resources or markets that they covet. And so the, the, this oil business in China is very, very dependent and, and, and tied into big multinational corporations, too. So I would guess that there's some real behind-the-scenes thing going on there that do not meet the eye at all. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very, very interesting, the fact that, that corporations now run our country. So we're, we're electing Obama, we're electing our congressmen and our senators, and we have this sense that we are in charge, that we, we still have a democracy. Sounds like it may not be so much the case. I think we're a long way from a democracy, unfortunately. Unfortunate, Jay. Jay I, I, you know, and I'm a very loyal American. My, I, 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 I'm somehow slightly related to Tom Paine, and mm-hmm. I, you know, my ancestors go back and fought in the revolution. I, you know, I'm, I, I'm extremely disturbed by what we're seeing. Uh, the, you know, this degradation of uh, of our uh, democracy and the, the latest uh, Supreme Court. Uh, ruling that gives corporations so much power in, in, in the electoral process. I think that's, that's horrible. But it's just one of many things that have been moving in that direction for a very long time. I remember in 1980 lamenting the fact that 50 corporations control the mainstream media. Now it's six corporations. Is you know, that the, right? The consol- yes, the consolidation of power uh, in the hands of a very few. Uh, and this really takes drastically away from our democracy. In addition to what I mentioned earlier, and that, that, that our media does a very poor job of informing us of what's really going on in the world, I just came back from Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Panama, Central America, and landed in, a, in, a, in an airfield, which is now a commercial airport, Liberia, in Costa Rica, which was built uh, essentially by Oliver North and, and the CIA uh, during the Iran-Contra series of events, and we have to remember that that was all a huge subterfuge that involved drug drug smuggling, involved weapon smuggling, it involved selling weapons to the Iranians so that we could have money to finance CIA operations. There's so much of this going on in the world, a lot of what's going on in Colombia, the drug operations there, That's uh, a lot of that is a smokescreen for, for funding CIA operations that are that nobody wants to put out in the public and it doesn't even want to put in the black boxes that go before Congress. Mm. So, so there's such subterfuge here, and, and I would suspect that there's something akin to that going on in this deal between uh, China and Iraq. And we're certainly deeply involved in that. Nobody gets involved in Iraq these days uh, without our permission. Right. It's very, very interesting you talk about the CIA being involved in drug operations and so forth. As I recall, there was a a report quite a few years ago, maybe back in the 80s or 90s probably, of that taking place where drugs were being sent into South Los Angeles. Um, and then a reporter who broke the story, I guess maybe he he met his demise as a result of it. But um, I, I don't know if you recall some story like that in South Los Angeles. I vaguely recall it, but I don't remember the details. And then, uh, and then we started building prisons, and uh, we privatized um, the prison business, and, and companies made huge amounts of money. And there's been, you know, reports that I've read about how 
black kids in the inner city would be rounded up and thrown in jail, and they, you know, the people that own these jails would get thirty-eight thousand a head or forty thousand dollars a piece, and these kids had really no, no legal representation, any ability to defend themselves. Is that, does that sound far-fetched to you? You know, once again, it, it, it's something I don't, I can't speak to from personal experience, yeah. but. But I, I think this, it's, it doesn't sound all that far-fetched. I think there's a lot of very, very shady stuff that goes on that, that, that we're not aware of. This whole privatization thing, to me, is monstrous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of, you know, in my book, Hoodwinked, I talk about the, the real problems in the world today are that we've embraced a form of capitalism that I call predatory capitalism. Mm-hmm. And it's only been around, we were using it in the 70s as economic hitmen in other countries, but it was really adopted kind of his official policy by Reagan in 1980, and has been by every president since. This is an uh, economic theories that have been that were espoused by Milton Friedman the Chicago School of Economics, and they largely replaced Keynesian economics, John mm-hmm. Maynard Keynes' school, that had, that had uh, been prevalent for many years before that. Keynesian economics is quite compassionate. It believes there's a strong role for government in watchdogging business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, and that the, and that the main goal of business is not just making profits, but it's being uh, responsible organizations, uh, responsible to everyone in the community. Mm-hmm. And um, on the, in, by contrast, uh, Milton Friedman, his economics basically had three principles. One is that the only responsibility of business is to maximize profits in the short run, regardless of environmental and social costs. Two, businesses should not be regulated because that gets in the way of making profits. Three, everything should be run by business. Therefore, everything should be privatized. The jails, as you mentioned, the schools. Now the military, you know, we've got more privatized soldiers in, 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 in Afghanistan today than, than actual government soldiers from the United States. And these three principles that have driven this, this predatory form of economics are brought us to a state of extreme instability, uh, unsustainability, and, and a very, very dangerous world situation, as, as we're seeing with this current recession and so much else that's going on. We need to turn that around. We need to come up with a new form of, of economics. Well, definitely. Uh, in your book, actually, there is a, I think, chapter, chapter two, uh, The Titans Clash. You talk about this ideological, economic uh, ideology uh, confrontation or the change uh, from Keynes to Friedman. Um, a lot of the listeners to this show are familiar with another school of economics that doesn't get any airing at all, and that's the Austrian school of economics. Are you familiar with the Austrians at all? I- I'm somewhat familiar with it, yes. And von Mises and the like. And I guess on the political scene these days, the only, the only elected official, at least at a national level, that I'm familiar with that has any sort of um, understanding or respect for the Austrians would be Congressman Ron Paul, who gained a, an incredible amount of um, currency, let's say, when he ran for president on the, on the Republican side because he, he dared to stand up and say things that most respectable Republicans would never say. I think, I think Congressman Paul, who's been, a, uh, who's been a, a guest on this show, would agree with you, John, on many, many aspects of... Um, of your concerns about international, uh, about the international, or the foreign policies of America, for sure. Uh, but uh, in any event, I, I, I find it very interesting what you're saying about Friedman, and uh, certainly Friedman was embraced by both Democrats and Republicans. I suppose if you look at the Obama administration, we've got 
uh, Paul Volcker uh, would probably fit the Keynesian model more and, and those values that you were talking about. Would you agree with that? I, I would agree with that, yes. You know, and he was probably uh, is given credit for having saved our economic system uh, at least for a while, at least uh, back in 1980, with with tight monetary policy when we were having, you know, rising inflation and and lots of problems. But in any event, uh, I want to uh, get into your book now. We're coming on. I mean, this time just goes so incredibly fast with you, John. But we're. I'm looking at a quote from um, your first chapter in your book, Hood, Hoodwinked. Uh, and I want to get to you, uh, ask you a little bit about how you picked the name hoodwinked. I think I have a, I have a sense of that from a, from a chapter uh, when you talk about Panama and your relationship with the Panama leader. But um, you say here, uh, when I was an economic hitman, I analyzed the statistics of many third world countries. I never saw any plummet as rapidly as those of my own country, the United States, during the past couple of years. End of quote. Well, that is really something because we're we're used to thinking these you know these look down our noses at these banana republics these thir- third world countries and what you're saying is that we had a massive devastating economic decline following the Lehman Brothers uh, failure in 2008. Uh, would you care to just comment on that perhaps a little bit as we get ready to uh, to take a break and then come back and talk about hoodwinked in the next half hour? Yeah, you know, you know Jay, I, I quote a lot of statistics in that. That section of the book that you're that you're referencing uh, about this horrendous decline—it's just been phenomenal. And yeah, you know, I think it's kind of uh, ironic, but also safe to say that, that we are uh, perhaps the largest banana republic in history. We've mm-hmm. become very much like the la- those laughing stock repu- uh, republics, uh, where where we really don't manufacture anything much anymore. Uh, our economy is based on military equipment, but many, most of the parts for that, even if the final product is manufactured in our country, which is becoming less and less, but most of the components are imported. Um, we and we become solely, basically, an economy that's based on either uh, financial instruments like derivatives and mergers and acquisitions, or the military, or trinkets, making trinkets for each other. One, with one difference, John, I think, is that we have this, this enormous military machine, and I'd like to ask you, you know, how long do you think that can go on? We're going to have to take a break here in about 30 seconds, but, uh, but maybe you can uh, give some thought to that when we come back on the other side of the hour when I ask you that. But I've got to get into Hoodwinked, and uh, more specifically the topics of Hoodwinked uh, as, as we come back after the commercial break. Don't go away, folks. We'll be right back. We'll be right back with John Perkins. 
up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Apollo Gold is a gold-producing and exploration company that recently brought the brand-new Black Fox Mine into production. Apollo's 100% owned Black Fox Mine is located in the world-renowned gold-producing district of Timmins, Ontario, Canada. It's expected to produce over 100,000 ounces of gold annually. Apollo Gold also has tremendous potential for additional gold discovery as they continue their current exploration program on their recent new discovery at the Gray Fox property, which is adjacent to the Black Fox Mine, as well as its new land acquisition of Pike River. With gold prices near an all-time high, investors should consider Apollo Gold as an outstanding opportunity to invest in an undervalued junior gold mining company, well positioned to take advantage of a bull gold market. Apollo Gold trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol AGT and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol APG. Visit Apollo's website at www.apollogold.com. Apollo Gold, a golden opportunity for investment. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm here with John Perkins. And at the break, John, I noted, I quoted you actually on the first, very first uh, sentence of Chapter 1 in your book. Uh, that title of the first chapter is Not a Fluke. And you talked about how the U.S. economy had just plummeted so rapidly, more rapidly than anything that you had seen among third world countries. And elsewhere in that chapter, you had mentioned that you think that <clears throat> that things are actually worse than what we're being told they are. Would you care to talk about that just a bit? Yes, well, you know, right now uh, we're being told that it looks like the economy is on an upswing, GNP is mm-hmm. growing. But we also have to, you know, we're also being told that Foreclosures are at an all-time high. Unemployment's the highest it's been in a quarter of a century. Uh, you know, people out of work, people starving. Uh, tremendous downturn in, in many areas. So I think what we're really seeing is that uh, some very rich people are getting a lot richer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wall Street people. You know, <laughs> we, we keep hearing about that. Oil companies. And they're investing in things that are pushing G- GDP up. But that's not the rest of us. We're going down. And this is so typical of what I saw throughout the third world as an economic hitman. You know, we, we saw that if we put big investments of infrastructure, power plants, highways, the things I talked about before, into the country, we used massive loans from the World Bank, hired U.S. corporations to build these big infrastructure projects that helped the very rich by providing electricity to their industries and, and, and their commercial centers, et cetera you'd see a growth in the GDP in these countries. But you'd also see that the poor people got poorer. The, the gap between rich and poor got wider. You can't really call that a real economic growth. It's mm-hmm. economic growth only for an elite sector. And I, that's what we're seeing in, in, the, in the United States today. This, this supposed growth in the economy is a growth only for a few people at the very top. And I think uh, until we come up with a new economic principle, we're going to continue going downhill until we get rid of this predatory form of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Listen, Jay, you know, I mean, all we can really say about the system we have today is it's a failure. Mm -hmm. You've got less than 5% of the world's population living in the United States. We consume more than 25% of the world's resources. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, roughly half the world's population is on the verge of starvation Mm -hmm. or actually starving. Mm -hmm. That's a failure. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's not a model. And, and we're the world's uh, empire. We are the, the leaders in the world. I mean, so we have to, I think we have to take some responsibility for that. Absolutely. I mean, we've made it happen that way. And, and, and of that 5% of the world's population consuming 25% of its resources, actually roughly 10% of that 5% really call all the shots and, and, and own a large percentage of the assets of this country. They're very, very wealthy. So we've got an extremely skewed system. And where you've got such 5% consuming 25% of the world's resources, you can't replicate that in, in Africa or Latin America, India, 
or anywhere else, in order for that to you know be consistent, in order for that to really serve as a model, we'd need another five or six planets just like this one, but without the people. That's not yeah. going to happen. So well, we've created a failure. We, we've got to turn this thing around, and, and our economy will never to- really recover until we start on the track of turning it around. Well, John, let me ask you this. It seems to me that the parallels between the model of the ruling elite going overseas and indebting, indebting getting foreign countries in debt so that they had to sell us their raw materials is very much like what's happened in the United States itself, whereas uh, masses of Americans have, been, have gotten into so much debt. Now, you can, I guess you can say, well, Americans shouldn't have done that, but you know, when, you, when you tantalize people with, uh, with false advertising and, and money and, and, and give away credit cards and everything else, I mean, it, clearly the banks were putting in small print all, this, you know, all the disclaimers and, and in large print to, to try to induce people to sucker them into going into debt. Would you say that the same model is in, in, in play domestically as, as what you were talking about globally? That's exactly it, Jay. You know, we economic hitmen, we go to these countries and say, listen, you know, you can borrow a tremendous amount of money because you've got all this oil in the ground or bauxite or whatever the resource was, and borrow, borrow, borrow. And they did. And then the bottom would drop out of the oil market, probably because we made it happen that way, and they would finally, and they would suddenly find themselves huge into debt, and then they're at our mercy. We, 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 you know, the IMF goes in and works out conditionalities whereby they have to sell off their utility companies uh, to, to to big multinational corporations, privatize, you know, their all their social services to big corporations. Well, we did the same thing here. The bankers went out and told someone who could should only have afforded a three hundred thousand dollar house that he could afford a five hundred thousand mm. dollar house. Tighten your belt, you know. Pay the pay this, and within five years, your five hundred thousand dollar house will be worth a million dollars. Right. And of course, what happened is the bottom fell out of the market. That house is now worth two hundred thousand. That poor sucker is still paying on the five hundred thousand, or he's been foreclosed on. The banks are going in and buying this stuff up at ten cents to the dollar. Mm-hmm. And the guy that carried all that debt, if he's still trying to struggle to hold it, is is a servant. He's not going to go out on the streets and protest. He's, he's going to do everything he can to hang on to his job and to hang on to his house or whatever he's got left in life. So he becomes very, very emasculated in this process. The same thing we did in developing countries, and that's just one of many examples of what's yeah. going on here. Yeah. Well, it seems to me we must have some domestic hitmen then, too. I would guess the big banks or the, the banks that, are, that were trying to induce people, the people that got involved in all these mortgages... Uh, you know, everybody was looking for a quick buck, and they made it. I mean, you know, the guys out on on Long Island out here with their with their fancy homes on the on the ocean, uh, they they seem to be doing quite well yet. And they're, yeah, they're still doing well. And the pharmaceutical companies and the insurance companies are, you know, that some of their employees are being laid off, but they're still their their owners, their stockholders, their big stockholders are still doing very very well. Thank you. You uh, titled the book Hood, Hoodwinked, and I think in, in reviewing the book that probably had something to do with a conversation you had with Omar Trujillos, the former leader of Panama. Would you care to talk about that? Yeah, you know, Omar, I, 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 I came to respect and, and like very much, and he defied me. He, he would not be corrupted, and one particular day we were standing on a, on a fancy yacht that had been lent to him, and, and he's saying to me, uh, Juanito, he called. This was all in Spanish, of course. He said, "Juanito, I'm not taking your damn money. I don't need it. I don't. I, you know, I've got a decent car. I've got a good house. 
I don't need any of this. What I need is, is I need to get the canal back in Panamanian hands, and I, I need to get Yankee imperialism out of Panama and out of all of Latin America. And he said, you know what else? I, I need to make sure that we have a sane economy here because you're trying to destroy, destroy it. Mm. Your predatory capitalism, he used mm. the word predatory capitalism, is, is destroying the economy of Latin America. And he said, you know what? It's going to destroy your economy, too, if you keep on this track. Very prescient, he, you know, he had great foresight in that way. And then he said, um, "So, not they no permit this gate in Ganyan, which translates to don't allow yourself to be hoodwinked. Mm. You've been hoodwinked." He said, you're, "And you're hoodwinking everybody else out there. Cut it out." And, he, and then he said, "Why don't you come work for me instead of being an economic hit man? Come, come, over, <laughs> to my, come over to my side." So, so yeah, he 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 came up with the title and. and in Spanish, which translates as, you know, hoodwinked or deceived. Um, and uh, I, I thought it was a pretty, pretty fitting title for this book. So hence the title of this book. Well, if you had gone over to work on the other side with Omar, your life might have been in danger, too. Yeah, but, you know, it wasn't too long after that that he was assassinated uh, because he, he defied us, because he would not come around, because he would not allow himself to be hoodwinked, and he wouldn't allow himself to be corrupted or bribed, or threatened for that matter. And how was he assassinated? Was it, was it his, his airplane went down, his yeah. aircraft went down? Was that... You know, the other president who I was also working on who wouldn't come around, Jaime Roldos at Ecuador, uh, he, he went down in, a, in, a, in an airplane crash in May of 1981, and Omar got his family all together at that point, and I, and I know family members that were there very well. Uh, so... Um, he got his family together, and he said, you know, I'm next. Uh, but don't, uh, don't, don't be concerned, because now, by that time, uh, he said, I have accomplished one of my main objectives, and that has gotten the canal back in Panamanian hands. He negotiated the treaty with Carter, which turned the Panama Canal over to Panama. So Did it said, really? Did it really do that? Um, partially. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, that, again, it's, it's smoke and mirrors. And he knew this. He was, he was disappointed final outcome, and yet it was better than anything that had happened before. But, mm-hmm. you know, as long as you've got a little country uh, in Central America with essentially no army, um, and you've got a huge country just north of you with a huge army and mm-hmm. a, an immense presence in Colombia, which is the next country south of Panama, uh, you know, obviously our army can take control anytime they want, our military can, and he was aware of that. Uh, but it did return the canal to uh, being run by Panamanians, and incidentally, despite all of our warnings, it's been run much more efficiently. There's been fewer accidents. The records are very clear on this. Fewer accidents, uh, more more transit of, of ships, uh, with a much better record, and more profits coming in. So they've done a very good job of running it. Interesting. It, that was probably some of the propaganda that was... Uh that was oh, yeah. used to try to destroy the uh, turnover of the canal. Well, yeah, back in the early 70s, and mm-hmm. you know, uh, it was. And, and Reagan wasn't president yet, but he he was taking a tremendously strong stance. It was one of his, you know, one of his goals of how to get to be president was opposing t- turning over the canal. And he said they'll destroy it; they won't mm-hmm. be able to operate it. And just the opposite has proven to be true. But in any case, so he gets his family together and he says, you know, I'm next, but don't worry about it. I've, I've accomplished the goal. Uh, a couple of months later, in June, so uh, he his plane crashed. It was almost it was a, 
explained very similar to rural doses and went down in very similar uh, conditions. There, from all the evidences, that, that this, that these were not plane crashes. These these planes uh, uh, were were, were uh, uh, what's the word? They were uh, toyed with. They you know they they were rigged to crash and mm-hmm. blow up and blow up in the air. Mm. Well, uh, you've you talk a lot in your books about Iran. You've had you had a lot of experience in your early days as a hitman in Iran. Is that right? And would you care to talk a little bit about the uh, the Mossadegh government and how it was undermined. Because I think you had established uh, or talked about in your first, uh, in the economic hitman, how that sort of set the, the mode in the post-nuclear age. Yeah, and, yeah so here's this uh, guy who was elected, democratically elected president, premier of uh, Iraq in the early 50s, uh, Mossadegh, and uh, he was Time Magazine's Man of the Year. He was held out as the hope for democracy in the Middle East and the world. Mm. Very enlightened guy. One won by a huge vote. But he part of his campaign had been to say that Iran's oil would have to help Iran's poorest people uh, bring themselves up by their bootstraps. Mm-hmm. And the main oil company in Iran at the time was what is today BP, British Petroleum. Mm-hmm. He said... You know, British Petroleum is going to have to share a much larger share of their profits with our people, or we'll nationalize. Well, we didn't like that at the time. England didn't, didn't was denied diplomatic presence in Iran, and so they asked the United States to intervene. It, it got rougher and rougher, and finally Eisenhower was president at the time, and he decided something pretty radical had to be done. Uh, but he didn't want to send in the troops because at that point, we're we're, we're in the middle of the Cold War with Russia. Russia has nuclear weapons. We have nuclear weapons. Iran is on the Russian border. Eisenhower and the Dulles brothers, who were head of the State Department and the CIA, decided that they couldn't risk sending troops in. So instead they sent in a CIA agent, Kermit Roosevelt, Tilly's grandson, with a few million dollars. And Roosevelt managed to organize a whole bunch of thugs to have protests and demonstrations in the streets. And he made it look as though Mossadegh was very unpopular and, and eventually uh, overthrew Mossadegh, put him under house arrest, and brought the Shah of Iran in, or brought him back in. And we all know that the Shah became a huge friend of big oil and of, of every other major construction company. I mean, he, he, he treated us very, very well. And you know, it's interesting because when the mullahs threw the Shah out, profits uh, related to war, would there be? No, they wouldn't have the war profits, and the oil companies wouldn't be making as many profits either. So they benefited from 
all of that, and of course they still do. And one of the reasons that we're rattling the saber once again around Iran is because, oh, let's go, let's have another war. You know, we're, you know, we we, we need more out there. We need to build, you know, make more uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction of our own. And you know, Jay, I, I in hoodwinked, I talk about the solutions to this predatory form mm-hmm. of capitalism. And you know, one of them I think is to, is to change this economic theory that says that the sole responsibility of business is to maximize profits regardless of social and environmental costs. Mm-hmm. Let's instead set in place some rules and let's as consumers mm-hmm. insist that we're only going to buy from corporations that make profits, but within the context of creating a sustainable, just, and peaceful world. Mm-hmm. Let's only buy from those kind of companies. And, you know, we could, I think we could create a, an incredible new economy. We could take a percentage of our military budget, for example, and Hey, the same companies, Raytheon, General Dynamics, uh, General Motors, General Electric, all the generals, um, to instead of making war equipment, make equipment that cleans up the polluted lands and waters and air of the world. But this world is terribly polluted, particularly mm-hmm. in the developing countries. Well, that, that certainly would, would make sense, wouldn't it? But uh, for some reason, human beings don't always seem to, <laughs> don't always seem to make sense. You, what you you know I'm, I mentioned at the break, John, that I'm involved with uh, with mining companies, mostly little tiny junior mining companies, exploration development companies. Some of them produce gold and other minerals in various third world countries to a great extent. And one of the things that I've noticed over the years is that the little tiny companies, not all of them, but many of them, are very conscious of what of their relationships with the local people in these countries. And unlike some of the large mining companies, I won't mention any names, but they, oh, I know these ahead. people personally, and they go into these countries and they are compassionate, they, they learn to know the people, the local people, the common folks, and they, they do everything they can to have their mines and their projects run by locals. They might have, you know, an engineer, a geologist, or, or something, a couple of people that come in from the outside to make sure things are going as smoothly as possible, but for the most part, most of these companies that I deal with are really trying to to do the right thing, and they are helping these countries use their natural resources to generate wealth. So they'll go in and maybe build a hospital, uh, some schools and things like that to help these poor people out. And then, of course, the jobs and the economic, uh, the, the money then flows to you know the the jobs and the wealth. A lot of it flows too. Some of it goes to the shareholders, of course, but. To a great extent, it gen- it rejuvenates or helps to bolster the local economy, and people really benefit from this. But then I, you know, hear the same stories about the big guys that go in. The big companies will go in and just sort of arrogantly t- assume that they can tell the locals how to run their lives and what they're going to do. And um, in my way of thinking, John, I-, I hope I'm on the right track here. A lot of these little companies that that I deal with, in fact, we're going to talk to one in the next segment of my of, of my show, a company that actually is involved in Colombia of all places. Hopefully they're doing the right thing, and that they are they are doing the kinds of things you're talking about. And I might also add that mining a lot of times gets a bad rap for being for being you know uh, messing up the environment, and that's certainly been true at times. But I also am very much aware that the Canadians, at least for the most part, have a very rigorous um, you know engineering requirements of their mines, so that so that uh, those kind of things just don't happen very often. But I'd just like your comment on that, if you would care to talk about it. I mean, it seems to me that going in and helping, using your technology to help the locals develop wealth is a good thing. Yes, you know, in fact, the 
year and a half or so ago, I was invited to give the keynote lecture at a conference that happened to be held in Panama, but it was mainly Canadian mining companies, their CEOs mm-hmm. and CFOs. Mm-hmm. They invited me down because they said, you know, we want to do a better job uh, of, of relating to these to these countries. Mm-hmm. We're seeing a revolution in Latin America where new leaders are coming along that are very enlightened. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to do a better job, and so they invited me down to spend time with them to give a keynote address and then hang out with them and talk about things they could do. I was very impressed by their determination to do a better job, by their recognition uh, that in the long run, the only way really uh, to make sure that they're going to have access to these resources is to develop good relationships with the local Mm -hmm. people. Now, the thing is that these small companies are in a position really where they have to uh, have that advantage of yes. working with the locals, whereas the really big companies can go in and muscle their way in and, and call on the military if they have to. Mm-hmm. We just saw that in Honduras. It wasn't mining companies, but the overthrow of the president of the of the democratically elected president Zelaya in Honduras was completely engineered by uh, the big agribusinesses Dole and Chiquita specifically. Oh, very interesting. And by uh, several big textile businesses like Russell Athletics, but in the ones that have sweatshops there. Mm-hmm. So this new president, Zelaya, had increased the minimum wage, which had a huge impact on them. It was threatening to have an impact on them in many other countries that would probably have followed suit. Mm-hmm. And so they tried to corrupt Zelaya with economic hitmen, and that didn't work. So they fomented a coup against him, and the CIA, I have no doubt, was very deeply involved. Chiquita was formerly United Fruit, which was behind the coup that overthrew the democratically elected president of Guatemala, Arben, oh. back, back in the 50s. And they used almost the same scenario, the same playbook uh, in Honduras just this past year as they had used in Guatemala back in the 50s. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's sad. And so I guess, you know, what I, with only about three minutes, actually two minutes left to go, and I, I didn't do justice to this because I know that you're offering some solutions. Um, we could go on and on. I have no doubt that there's so much more to talk about. But could you just tell us what hoodwinked you? Pro- you provide some solutions or some ideas that you have about what Americans can do to try to turn things around. Would you care to share that with our listeners before well, you, we have to say goodbye? Yeah, in two minutes, that's like half the book. Uh, there's really five approaches that I discussed in the book, and, and these are approaches. Every one of them, each each one of your your, your listeners could could take or, or choose one of them or do all five. But they're very practical, and and they will turn things around. And I think that's you know in 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 the minute I've got left, I think the best I can say is that I'm extremely optimistic that we can do this, and by hoodwinked and find out the solutions. I would have liked to have talked about them more, but maybe it's just better if people buy the book because there's a lot more detail in there. Well, it's a, it's a good idea that people buy the book. And, John, where can people learn more about about the book? Is it You have a website. JohnPerkins.org. And if they want to order the book, I'd strongly suggest doing it through DreamChange.org, a nonprofit I founded that gets a small share of the profits if they order through there. I'm speaking around the country, too, uh, in uh, in Miami uh, in two days, and then I move on to Phoenix and Boulder and California. So all of those things are on uh, on my website. On your website, are you coming yeah. to New York anytime? I was in New York fairly recently, and I'm not sure when I'll be back now. But I, of course, I will be back. I go to New York at least once or twice a year to speak. 
Well, I'd love to come and hear your, one of your talks sometime, John. And I guess what I have to do is I have to do what you just told our listeners. <laughs> Watch the website. And also, I'm on Twitter at uh, economic underscore hitman, and I'm on Facebook, so you can check those out. And those keep my schedule pretty up to date, too. Well, that's terrific, John. I want to thank you again uh, for coming on our show. Um, I, I guess there's, um, you know, we could leaf through this book, The Modern Robber Barons. Uh, we didn't talk much about the banks, and I, one of the issues I would have liked to talk to you about, maybe if we can get you on again sometime, we can explore this. The banks, the banking industry, it seems to me that's where all the profits are going. And the the financial system seems to be a big game in which money is reallocated from those that produce the wealth to those that create or control the system. Would you agree with that? Yes. Absolutely. John, thanks so much for being on, and, and we'll look forward to talking to you again again sometime. Folks who are coming right back, we're going to be talking to Antioquia, the president and CEO of Antioquia, and after the break, we'll be right back. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Apollo Gold is a gold-producing and exploration company that recently brought the brand-new Black Fox Mine into production. Apollo's 100% owned Black Fox Mine is located in the world-renowned gold-producing district of Timmins, Ontario, Canada. It's expected to produce over 100,000 ounces of gold annually. Apollo Gold also has tremendous potential for additional gold discovery as they continue their current exploration program on their recent new discovery at the Gray Fox property, which is adjacent to the Black Fox Mine, as well as its new land acquisition of Pike River. With gold prices near an all-time high, investors should consider Apollo Gold as an outstanding opportunity to invest in an undervalued junior gold mining company, well positioned to take advantage of a bull gold market. Apollo Gold trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol AGT and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol APG. Visit Apollo's website at www.apollogold.com. Apollo Gold, a golden opportunity for investment. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. 
I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with us today a couple of gentlemen from a company called Antioca, Antiochia. I'm going to get it right yet, Gold. Uh, they're a TSX Venture Company, AGD is a symbol, 62.1 million shares outstanding, uh, about 38 cents the last time I took a look at the stock. Uh, this segment of Jay's, uh, this segment of Turning Hard Times into Good Times is brought to you by Jay's Watch List. And Jay's Watch List is a list of companies that I am taking a serious look at for possible inclusion into my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. If you would, uh, sort of view it as a farm system. Uh, of uh, of companies that that I'm looking at uh, for serious you know possibilities of of recommending to my subscribers and Antiochia uh, is one company that could very well make its way onto our uh, into our newsletter at this point in time I'm going to uh, learn a little bit more as will you as we talk uh, as we talk to Rick Tebow he's the president of the company and Brad Vandenbush, he's the Vice President in Charge of Explorations. Welcome, gentlemen, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Great Good to, to have both of you here. I think you're talking to me uh, possibly from Columbia. I'm, I'm in Columbia. Brad Vandenbush is in I'm Columbia with my geology team today. Okay, and, uh, and Rick, you're, you're not in I, Columbia? No, I'm uh, I'm headed to Columbia. I'll be there uh, tomorrow. I'm in uh, in transit. Okay. Well, you're uh, exclusively involved in Columbia, your company at this point in time, I believe. That that's correct, uh, Jay. We were founded by ten members, of which seven of us had worked in Columbia before, and uh, we all felt comfortable, so we targeted it. You uh, felt comfortable there at a time when Columbia wasn't always considered to be the uh, the greatest risk in the world. How do you feel now about Columbia in terms of its political risks? Uh, very comfortable. Uh, 
Uh, we find it probably, uh, I've worked all through South America, and it's probably one of the most stable countries in terms of uh, the judicial and the political situation uh, out of uh, all the ones I've worked in. Uh, that's very interesting. I don't know if you gentlemen had a chance to listen to some of the remarks of uh, John Perkins, who was on before us, but he, of course, has a view of the of the world that is uh, somewhat different than the mainstream, I would say. And, of course, I was explaining to him that I thought, you know, a lot of the mining companies, the smaller ones from Canada, that go into third world countries are very conscious of the locals and they try to, they try to do the right thing in terms of not taking advantage of, of local people. Uh, do you have any programs in place, or I guess maybe you're, it's a little earlier, you're, you're really an exploration company at this point in time, but how do, you, how do you get along with the locals, I guess is what I'm leading up to. Okay, Brad, I'll take that one, okay? All right. Uh, Jay, before we even, uh, before we did any uh, serious exploration in the area, uh, we spent about $50,000 on a social economic program in the Cisneros area so that we understood the people, uh, what they had gone through, what they are, and we got all kinds of statistics and really understood. And one of the things that you've got to remember, too, as you say, the locals, that's the people, and, and in our particular area, 50% of the people are under 25 years of age. That's our future workforce, and that's what we're targeting, like our efforts in that. And then also by having the people and understanding them, that's your security in, in Colombia. Uh, when the people know you and they trust you, uh, you'll be taken care of. So we started programs from day one, and we still continue to this day, and we've got studies, we've got our environmental we deal with all the local mayors. We have lunch with them a couple times a month and, and, and everything. So, yes, you have to do that. That's the only way you can get success nowadays. Well, as John Perkins was saying, that uh, a lot of times the larger companies uh, use their, you know, their muscle, their strength, their money or whatever, and even in some cases, not that you Canadians would do it, but the Americans would send in their military uh, even to back up uh, Corporations, and um, you know, I mean, that certainly is is foreign to my way of thinking in terms of the companies that I deal with, like like yours and others that I've learned to know. Where where the uh, you know the mining companies, the smaller mining companies, really do exactly what you're talking about uh, and try to do the right thing by people and actually help the people build wealth in their communities and and make their lives better. Uh, your flagship property is a, is known as the Cisneros property in Colombia. Could you give us a little idea? Is that a, a is that a near surface open pit target? Is it a deep target? Is it high grade? Is it? Could you just tell us a little bit about that property and and how far uh, you've developed it at this point in time? Yeah, I can probably take that, Rick. You know, Jay. Basically, um, at Cisneros, what we have is an area with a long history of, of artisanal mining in, in quite high-grade structures, mainly shear zones with veins. And what's apparent from the surface geology and the relatively shallow artisanal mines and tunnels is that there's definitely a structurally controlled gold-type uh, system here. Um, it's been proposed that the system is mesothermal or sourced from medium depth, but we're also seeing mineralization assemblages that indicate sourcing from different depths. Um, a recent drilling program has, that we just finished has con confirmed both the extension of many of these structures laterally and at depth, and the presence of very high gold values in some of these structures. In particular, our Guayabito prospect drilling encountered an extremely promising gold values over significant drilling intervals. For example, our, our hole 27 encountered just about 12 meters at 22 grams. 
uh, it's a drilled thickness, including a value of 216 grams in 1.7 meter interval. You know, as I said, granted, we need to do further work to determine the true widths of these zones, but it's very exciting. And, you know, in addition, many of these holes have encountered structures with high-grade values um, in, in multiple zones, indicating a potential for some bulk tonnage deposits in areas where these structures cluster and intersect. You know, in essence, what we need to remember is that, you know, we've only done one small drilling program of 4,000 meters in season arrows. Wow. You know, and it's produced some very nice and encouraging results, in my opinion. And mm-hmm. at this point, the key for us is to understand how these structures are orientated and relate to each other at depth. You know, and right now the geology team's working very hard incorporating these um, this data into a 3D uh, geological model and developing the next uh, drilling plan for 10,000 meters, which we'd like to initiate sometime between March and May this year. Okay, could you tell us that intersection that you talked about is really very, very attractive. Uh, was that at depth? How deep was that? That was at about 180 meters of depth. So very pretty close drilled to the depth. surface, yeah. So roughly, roughly about uh, 100 meters uh, vertically from surface. Could you give us some sense of, uh, do you, so what, in terms of the structure, do you, I guess what you're doing is finding out as you drill, you learn to know more about the structure, the orientation of the, of the host rocks and so forth, but what are your what what do you know, if anything, about the potential size of of what you have there? Well, what we know in in our initial 170 uh, roughly hectares is that that we have identified at least 40 mineralized structures. Um, there's been in excess of 20 artisanal mines in the area. The structure comes in dominantly two directions, one that's approximately north-south and the other approximately east-west. In some areas, there's also a third structure overlying it. So basically the key to this is to identify and link these mineralized structures into, into a model, which is, which is what we're concentrating on right now. Um, what we know is where these are dominantly shear zones that typically range from 1 to 15 meters in width, and within these shear zones, there's a combination of high-grade veins plus disseminated material, but it's uh, structurally controlled at surface. Mm-hmm. But also remembering is that, you know, many of the, you know, large discoveries in the world, especially in Canada, um, you know, for instance, uh, Red Lake, uh, Timmins, Naranda, many of these started as vein deposits because they're the, they're the first, um, you know, visual identification in, the, in these type of type of systems, but as as time went on and exploration continued, these areas all turned into world class mining camps with uh, with multiple commercial deposits. Mm-hmm. So you know the mineralogy and some of the alterations indicating to me that what we're seeing with these veins within the first couple hundred meters at surface may just be the tip of the iceberg as to a larger system, mainly because the sheer number and the quality of uh, of some of these gold hosting systems these shear zones i might mention to our to our listeners and and you know i'm not neither endorsing or not the company at this point in time but i just my observation is that when you're talking about shear zones of that size uh 1 to 15 meters those are pretty good mining widths generally speaking yes if we can if we can show continuous grade over over width and 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 link 
many of these um, shear zones from from hole to hole. We've you know we could potentially have a you know a very interesting commercial deposit down the road. It is very early for sure, as you said, only four thousand uh, four thousand meters. You said of drilling. Yes, and it was mo- mostly designed to to um, to encounter and 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 affirm some of the structures that we were seeing in the very shallow artisanal mines and surface. Mm-hmm. And now what we've got to do is take some of those best encounters, match it with the geophysics, and do additional drilling to try to add some size to to the to the extremely good um, good in- intersections and. Um, Try to piece together a resource um, as we move forward. Do you? Uh, what's your budget situation like now? Do you have money in the till to do to embark on a on an aggressive drilling program, or do you need to raise some more capital? Uh, yeah, I'll take that. Um, okay. No, Jay, we're we're in good shape. Uh, the, we uh, have our uh, uh, 2010 operating budget already set, and uh, 10,000 meters was included in it, including uh, work with a QP and resource study, and also funds to do exploration. Some of the other, we, we have more than just the Cisnero project, and we have a team that's moving forward on that, and we're pretty, we're pretty set for uh, 2010, but that's not to say we hit something big at Cisneros. Of course, we'd go out in the market. Uh, but uh, no, for this upcoming program, we're set. Well, that sounds uh, that sounds good. So you don't need to raise more money right now. You're at 38 cents. The last I looked earlier yep. in the day, uh, you got a market cap that's only a little over 20 million dollars in Canadian in Canadian money, I believe, around 20 million dollars in U.S. money, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems to me like you have a very exciting exploration play here, just from what you're telling me here and the little I knew about you before we started speaking, but. Is it your goal then to be just, uh, I shouldn't say just, are you an exploration company that hopes to build a world-class asset and then turn it over to someone else, or do you envision yourselves as somebody who might be able to uh, to march a project forward into production? What is what is the goal of the company? Um, actually, we have experience we can do it uh, both ways, uh, Jay. Uh, we, we'd like to work towards bringing it to production. We have quite a few people uh, in the founders group that have built mines and ran mines and stuff like that, and we have that capability. But as you know, uh, there are other people looking around in Colombia, and uh, you, you know, if, if you found uh, multiple millions, um, it'd be pretty hard to try to keep that to yourself. Right, and uh, certainly, you know, whatever the price that has to do with it, you. Would like to ask do you: uh, Do the insiders have a good position in this company? What more or less do they have a, a large percentage of the ownership or not? Uh, uh, originally, of course, when it was founded, it did. But yeah. uh, we, we we we're below fifty percent, so we don't control uh, the company like uh, some would. Mm-hmm. Well, as I said, but I mean, the most important thing I think, from my perspective, is that companies have that the management of companies have an interest that's similar to their shareholders, and so. You know, building shareholder wealth is what what I like to see in the, in the companies I invest in. I think all all investors are like that. But I was just uh, curious about it. Well, it there definitely seems as though you have a a very interesting project uh, going on here, and I'm sure what we'll be telling our subscri- our listeners here on an ongoing basis is uh, any sort of press releases you guys come out with more of those kind of 22 grams over. 12 meters, and I'll tell you, that's going to catch some attention. And, and that you were able to do that with just the first 4,000 meters uh, of drilling is, is pretty impressive, I think. So certainly, could you just tell us what sort of land position do you have? Is it a large uh, area that you control? 
uh, in that area, we've got 5,500 acres. Hectares, sorry. Hectares. 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 Okay. Well, uh, which I guess is the main thing is you've got lots 10, of things to shoot at, the way it sounds, and uh, lots of artisanal miners that have uh, certainly proven that there's gold there. So uh, we'll look forward to keeping in touch and, uh, you know, let us know when you've got some good res- drill results or whatever else that might be important to our listeners, and we'll, we'll keep them uh, up to date on what you're doing and, and perhaps have you back sometime in the not-too-distant future. Perfect. Thank you very much Perfect. for having us on your show, Jay. Okay, yep. you're welcome, and uh, and all the best to you. And um, uh, we're going to go to a break now, so let's um, let's take a break, a commercial break coming up, and we'll be right back with Roger Wiegan. Roger will be with us uh, to recap this week's show. We're going to see what Roger where Roger thinks the markets are going to go now, um, the gold markets, the equity markets, etc. We'll be right back with Roger Wiegan. bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. Have you been acquiring physical gold, silver, and coins? Are you receiving the best price and the best service you can? Why not work with the most recommended precious metals company in the country? Resource Consultants is recommended by over 20 newsletter writers, several websites, and countless stockbrokers and financial planners. Call them now and find out how they can help you. 800-494-4149. Or visit them on the web at www.buysilvernow.com. That's 800-494-4149. They'll be waiting for your call. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm here with Roger Wiegand for the wrap-up of this week's show. Roger, I've uh, had the impression, or it's my belief and what I've been telling my subscribers, is that we are in a secular bear market you can either mark that from 2007 when we saw the um, you know the recent peak in the Dow, or go back to 2000 as Luis Giamani does, talking about you know when the Nasdaq was at 5,000, never really uh, you know it's really tanked and it's never come back to more than about 20 some hundred or so. What are your thoughts? Are we in a secular bear market and this uh, bounce up that we've had and are still seem to be enjoying somewhat? 
is this uh, the real McCoy, or are we going to go back down and go down hard again? What are your thoughts? Well, it depends on the cycle. Uh, Luis Amat is correct, in my view. I think this bear market started way back when the NASDAQ fell down after the 70 years of K-Wave. Uh, uh, I can't pronounce that word. You know what I'm saying. Kondratiev, the Kondratiev cycle. Yeah, uh, from 29 to 99, 70 years, a little longer than standard. But when the when the, a good portion of the Nasdaq vanished, I think that was the line in the sand. And basically, what happened after that, Jay, is Greenspan came in with money with both hands. He not only dropped the interest rates and started throwing cash around to prop it all up, but then they they came on with the housing thing as well, and that gave it such a boost that uh, uh, we we produced some more bubbles. So in reality, I think we've been in a secular bear market since the Nasdaq fell down. I think it's going to continue probably for another three to five years. Now, in the middle of bear markets, of course, you do have a bull market bounce. Uh, that happened in the 30s two or three times. We're seeing it again. We've been through one now. I think we're in the second one on the way up after the Lehman event. And then come spring, I think we're looking for another downslide that's going to be quite severe. Some people are saying that the second half of this year is going to be so severe they intend to go into hibernation from May until next January. Mm. I don't think it's going to be that bad, but you never know. Right. Te- technically, we'll be able to figure it out as we go along, but uh, the good news is is that we got through this latest correction, it appears. Uh, we hit the bottom here last Friday, and I was unclear as to whether we were going to get started today, February 1st and 2nd, and we have. Uh I'm looking at the stock charts as we speak. Everything's gotten back in line where it should be. Uh, one of the most important ones for your listeners is the S&P 100 got back above 500. In fact, it closed at 511. Uh, that's where the big stocks are. That's where the big money is. And they put the money back in the funds because they think they're going to ride a bull from now through probably April. Okay, Roger, do you think we've seen the highs for this, uh, what McHugh labels the B, the B wave up? Um. Or do you think we still have some new highs before we go down again? Well, I, I don't think we're going to go to any new highs, but we're getting a recovery. Now, in fact, it could go to a double high, a double top, which mm-hmm. would be uh, a bear sign. Uh, I think that uh, Bob McHugh's idea that we go two-thirds of the way back up is probably more correct. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, uh, then we're looking at some uh, gradual selling and then probably some, some more, uh, more severe selling, excuse me, but, you know, gold came back nicely today. We're at uh, futures after hours, uh, 11, 14 and a half, 11, 15, silver, 16, 70. All our commodity currencies, the Swiss, the Canadian, and Euro, all did nicely today. They came back. <clears throat> Excuse me. The uh, dollar sold off. It touched nearly uh, 8080, came back to 79.18, so it's starting to drop as we expected. And the bonds are flat at one eighteen one hundred on the long bond. Okay, Roger, we're just running out of time here. I have to ask you, so the, when the equity market goes down, what happens to gold? Well, normally gold will go down too, but I, right now we're, it's firming up. And uh, the commodity markets are in a full bull, mo- bull mode now with, with the shares. Okay, Roger, I've got to cut you off. We've, we're running out of time, and I've got to just say goodbye and let people know that next week we're going to have Ian Gordon is going to be with us. Ian is going to tell us why Dow 1000 is not a silly number. Interestingly enough, uh, Richard Russell recently has come out with a 1,000 Dow prediction as well. 
So not necessarily what we want to hear, but we want to be prepared for the worst. I think that makes sense to be prepared. Uh, so you'll want to tune in with us next week. I also just want to tell you that you can take advantage of some trial subscriptions to Chen Lin's wonderful letter, $39 for one month. You can get a trial subscription to Roger's tremendous letter, Trader Tracks, for 49 bucks. You can get a three-month trial subscription to yours truly's newsletter, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, for 59 bucks. So call Claudio Bossi at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or go to our website, miningstocks.com, where you can connect to all three of those letters. Before we close, I have to just thank our, uh, our operations manager, uh, Ruben Colombe, uh, Tacey Trump, my senior executive producer, uh, Justin Jackman, my engineer. These people make this show logistically possible. Thanks again to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time is